Happy Mother's Day, ladies. We're so glad that you are here, and we're so grateful for you. I am personally grateful. Many of you have had major impacts on my children as they were growing up, and we're so thankful to have you as part of our, our church and ministry. Today we're going to spend some time uh, talking about moms, talking about uh, God's instructions for wives and for moms, and so I'd like you, if you would, to turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 3, some, some of the things that I think are funny, which probably will give you an idea of how weird my sense of humor is. I, I can relate to that totally with my wife. And that's absolutely the truth, and you know that if you have little ones in your house, silence is not golden if they're around. The one God chose, let's uh, look at Titus chapter 2. It's a joy to have some time together in the Word as we've completed our, our study of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It gives us a little bit of a time, a little bit of time to be in some passages on this Lord's Day, on Mother's Day, and it's my intent to take some opportunity to address some topics in Scripture concerning motherhood and family and children and the time we have and God's instructions for those very important things. There's a poem by Ruth Graham Bell uh, that I think captures part of the struggle of being a mom. She says, had I been Joseph's mother, I'd have prayed protection from his brothers. God, keep him safe. He's so young, so different from the others. Mercifully, she never knew there would be slavery in prison, too. Had I been Moses' mother, I'd have wept to keep my little son, praying she might forget the babe drawn from the water. Had I not kept him for her, nursing him the while, was he not mine and she but Pharaoh's daughter? Had I been Daniel's mother, I should have pled, give victory over this Babylonian horde, godless and cruel, don't let him be captive, better dead, almighty Lord. Had I been Mary, oh, had I been she, I would have cried as never a mother cried. Anything, oh God, anything but crucified. With such prayers importunate, my finite wisdom would assail. Infinite wisdom, God, how fortunate, infinite wisdom should prevail. We've all been there, haven't we? We prayed for our children to be delivered from difficulty, from looming hardship, with the out knowing that God has intended for them to be in those things and to bring them through those hardships for his own glory and for the purpose of his kingdom. It's not an easy road for moms, for wives, for mother-in-laws. Ed, a big game hunter, goes on a safari in Kenya with his wife Kim and his mother-in-law Helen. One evening while deep in the jungle, Kim awakens to find her mother, Helen, has disappeared. Rushing to her husband, she insists on them both trying to find her mother. Sighing heavily, heavily, Ed picks up his rifle, starts to search for Helen soon the clearing. Not far from camp, they come on a frightening sight. Helen, the mother-in-law, is backed up against a thick, impenetrable bush, and a large male lion is standing there facing her. Kim cries out in panic, Ed, what are we going to do? Nothing, explains Ed calmly. Absolutely nothing, my dearest. The lion got himself into this mess. Let him get himself out of it. It's hard to be a mom, it's hard to be a parent, isn't it? It's hard to be a spouse. There was, there's always the anxiety of, am I doing this right? Uh, we're never short of second-guessing ourselves. Fortunately for us, the Scripture is not silent on its difficulty because of the curse and because of the world around us and all the temptations and all the distractions and because of its difficulty, how to approach it. 
And so we're going to take a short look at two different spots, and these two passages will also give us a little snapshot of some of the things that we're going to look forward to in our next multiple book study of First and Second Timothy and Titus. I'd like you to turn Titus chapter 2, verse 1, if you haven't already done that. And here's a place where we can turn to help us understand what the Lord expects, to help us uh, alleviate the, the worry of, am I doing this right? Because it gives us a list of things that are things we're supposed to be doing, helping us minimize the impact of the curse, uh, to minimize the influence of the culture, to press the reset button so we can sure, be sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in the midst of all the demands on us. As I told you, I've, I've uh, shared with you before, when I first learned I was becoming a father, um, I didn't know what to do. I, I knew I could teach him a lot of different things. Uh, I had skills and things that I could pass on to him, and, and, uh, but I wanted to know what, the, what things were that the Lord wanted me to teach. It wasn't important what I could teach, but what, was, what were the imperatives? What were the things I had to pass on? What are the things I had to make sure happened? And so that gave me into, uh, to a study of these passages, and of course the ones in Ephesians, which we've spent some time in, was just that's an overflow of my own desperate look to see where do I as a dad and to be a godly father to make sure I communicate and teach and model the things that are most important uh, as my boys are growing up. These are much the same, these passages, as you'll see, moms, as we think about um, what it is we need to spend our time on, minimize the impact of the curse and the influence of the culture, and perhaps minimize the, am I doing this right? Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1. So, Paul is giving Titus instruction. Titus is on Crete. He's organizing the church. No doubt is going to need this instruction so he can pass it on. He says, but as for you, Paul says to, to Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So just in general, make sure that those are the things you're communicating. Sound doctrine. Don't, don't focus on anything else but that. And then he gives some, some examples of that. In verse 2 he says, teach older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, Sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine. Teaching what is good. That they may encourage or train the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. So he's writing to Titus. He's likely going to have to teach these kinds of things. He's going to have to teach older men. He's going to have to teach older women and he's going to have to teach the young woman, which is our focus here today. The first part that needs to be clear, the first responsibility, I think, is we just look at these and just dive right in. The passage is going to address moms, it's going to address women. It says they are to, and they're supposed to be taught to love their husbands. Philandros, it's a phileo, is the word of love, and then this, this is an affectionate type of love for her husband. Seems obvious, doesn't it? But it's a command anyway. The wives are to be affectionate to their husbands, one that belongs to her, very personal there, and then love their children. Hello, technos, same idea. Self-sacrificing, affectionate type of love for her children, the one that belongs to her, again, very personal. And we're going to see in just a little bit, there's a way to love children in the most affectionate kind of way, the most concerned kind of way. We're going to see that in a moment. And then verse 5, look there if you would. Be, to be sensible, she's going to have to teach the older women, teach the younger women to be sensible, pure, workers at home, subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. So in verses 3 through 5, there's a series of commands, very brief, very specific, 
uh, and obeying these commands has an incredible impact, and we won't have time to do it justice today, but we will in the future. Uh, these things being a big impact, what is it? That the Word of God may not be dishonored. So the commands are so that we do them so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. That's the caveat. Believers are to obey it. The Bible and its instruction carries with it so that people watching won't conclude that we don't think the Bible is really all that important. That's what that means. We don't want the Word of God reduced in its importance in the eyes of those watching. And I don't think that that's our intent. It's certainly not our goal to come across that way. Wives should follow these patterns for the sake of their own joy, for the sake of blessing from the Lord, for the sake of making marriage the grace of life that God intended for it to be, for the sake of having family and children that are a heritage from the Lord, for the sake of showing the watching world that we obey the Word of God because we believe God has given it, and so it has authority in our lives and we obey. There's a lot at stake when a husband or wife won't follow these instructions. They can wreck their marriage, they can ruin their testimony, take themselves out of a path of blessing, most of all because the Word of God uh, to be dishonored, it gives a false picture of Christianity to watching children. In other words, we say one thing and then we don't obey it, and then the children watch, and it's easy for them to pick up a phony. Back at Titus 2.5, and we'll just look at these briefly without illustration, which isn't our normal habit, but, but for time's sake, I want to make sure that we cover the things we need to cover. It says, Be civil, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. As sensible, as the adjective sophronos, has to do with curbing one's desires, one's impulses. has to do with being self-controlled, being temperate. That's the idea. Pure, the adjective hagnas, it's chaste or holy, set apart from the world's influence, from wicked things. Workers at home, oikurgos, it is really busy at home. That's what it means. And we think about this command for older women to teach the younger women their main areas of responsibility, one of them is to be workers at home. And if we combine that with being a child lover and being a husband lover, it really points towards the health of the family and the welfare of the family and a smooth running household. Those are the main emphasis. And of course, independence and freedom and additional income have come in the way of this simple, straightforward teaching. And it carries a lot of acceptance inside the church. And I understand the pressure on the family. I have one. And the need for additional income, which can stem, of course, from choices made earlier concerning debt and school bills and, and so forth. And we've gone through God's plan for material possessions, and we looked at a lot of that, and so I won't go through that again, and we'll revisit that study from time to time. As we see the simple teaching and you examine the season of life that you're in and the age of your children and, and their need, it may be that some change in trajectory is in order so that the Lord can begin to bless your efforts and get mom and children home. Because when we foul up God's order, everything gets messed up. Not just, of course, in our life where it has to do with um, all the kinds of things that then become a problem because we're not giving ourselves to that, but of course then the Word of God is just dishonored. The rest of the verse says the older women are to teach the younger to be kind uh, that's the adjective agathos, it is doing what's useful, uh, what's beneficial. It's a way that we express phileo, if we do kind things to people. And then it says, being subject to their own husbands. Same command we've seen over and over, willingly bringing herself up under his authority. And only her own husband, of course, that's the one she's under. 
And of course, then I would just say as a caveat, if your husband continues to encourage you to violate the principles we just went over, then as a helpmate, you may need to help him see these kinds of things are important. And all of that, as hard as it may sound, uh, for a much bigger purpose, that the Word of God may not be dishonored. And that, again, that word dishonored, blasphemeo, to be defamed, to be railed on, uh, to be spoken evil of, reviled. The Word of God is reviled when we don't follow those commands. That's what we don't want. And it's in the present passive subjunctive, which shows a contingency. And what's the contingency? How can we keep the Word of God from being dishonored? By following its guidelines. And, of course, dishonor could be children growing up to reject Christ because we didn't obey the clear Word of God to have them in church and be part of teaching them to know Him and modeling that. Unbelievers look at how we manage our family and infer that God's powerless or unkind because of the trouble that we seem to always be in. So it has to do with testimony, it has to do with obedience to what the Word of God says. And now, you know, I think we can see just with a cursory look at that passage, it gives us a wonderful reminder, perhaps an exit even, or a reset to get off the tangent and back where we need to be. Now let's look briefly at another passage that will do the same thing. Turn to 1 Timothy 2, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. And this one is set in a broader context of conduct for everyone. And of course, uh, Timothy uh, became the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and so a large church with a lot of responsibility a young pastor with some need for instruction. And so Paul does the same thing for Timothy and tells him what he needs to teach because these are the things he's going to bump into. And it starts out this way. It says, likewise, verse 9. So likewise, like what? Well, look at verse 8 back up. Verse 8 says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without dissension. So some qualifications on lifting up holy hands. Uh, get rid of the anger, get rid of the uh, argumentative attitude, and to pray. And then he says, likewise. So then he's going to apply these same kinds of things to uh, the women. He says, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with hair and gold, pearls, or costly garments, verse 10, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. There's that same language again. Not overbearing, it's just God's order, good works, are as an outflow of those making a claim to godliness. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not, verse 12, allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, verse 13, for it was Adam who first was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, all that instruction, of course, is, is just poo-pooed and dismissed because many people say as they read that passage, well, that's just local, it's just that congregation, it was just something Paul was having to deal with. And I would propose to you, and, and it's like this in a number of places, if the reasons for giving the instruction are eternal, then it's a universal instruction. And these are one of these places. What's the reason why a woman is not allowed, and this, of course, has to do with what goes on in the church. A woman's not allowed to teach uh, a man or have authority in the, over a man in the church. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So all the instruction is based on something established from of old. So it's this way because of the created order, and because of vulnerability, and it has to do with activity in the worship service at church, and we're going to look at that more uh, at length in our, in our study, but she does not preach or teach to a man according to Scripture, she's not an authority in those areas in the church. And of course, there's no place in the scripture where we're going to see uh, women serving as elders or serving as overseers in the church. There's no place at all. And so uh, we understand that that's how the church 
that's how the church followed that. It's a complementarian type of relationship, not an egalitarian. So, in other words, everybody's not equal to do whatever they want. A complementarian type of relationship with men and women in the church, with each given their instruction and their, and their responsibility. That's God's design by creating Adam first and then Eve to be his help. Now look at verse 15. But women shall be preserved, it says, through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What's she preserved from? And just as an overview, just before we get into this, she's preserved from perhaps what you may be thinking right now, based on the verse. Some kind of dishonor that she would have to bear because she was first deceived or perhaps relegated to some lower position because she was the first of the human race to be deceived, but it says women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they, that's the women and the children, continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So in Genesis, we read that Eve was led, led mankind into sin. The stigma that women bear can be reversed, though. That's the idea Paul's giving to Timothy to teach to the church when a woman raises a godly generation of children. So the whole act then is reversed when women follow God's divine plan for them. That's the idea. So what role then will the submission of a wife play in the raising up of godly children? What role will uh, the godly character and modesty and loving her husband and being sensible and pure and working at home and, and being involved there and being involved in what's going on, what's the benefit and, what's, and, uh, and what's, what's the impact of that? Well, the role it plays as we put these passages together is reversing the process in Genesis, and reducing the effect of the fall. And it becomes this physical picture of God's love and His faithfulness and His priority and His intimacy and kindness and salvation given to the world through the picture of marriage and the way children are raised. That becomes this picture, a physical picture. And so it reduces the influence of the culture that wars against all of that. It presses the reset button. It answers the, what are, what are the most important things I need to do among all the competing demands that are no doubt on your life? These things have to rise to the top. Now, somebody says, well, what kind of preservation is it? You mean you're saved by, from sin by having babies? Obviously, it can't mean that. It's in the future tense, which shows it couldn't refer to Eve. It wasn't even talking about Eve. Furthermore, if they continue in faith, means it's more than one woman and more than one child. Genesis points out the woman was deceived, and in the transgression, and she broadens to include all women shall be preserved in childbearing if they continue to do the sorts of things and it all melts into that, that they continue in these kinds of things. So the qualifier is, if this is the outcome, both of the woman's life and of the children's life, then she reverses this whole effect. So preserved can't be from sin. And the essence of the passage is that women are preserved from the stigma of having caused the fall of the race by childbearing. In other words, women led into the fall, and then by this wonderful grace of God, women get to lead people and little ones out of the fall by being given this urgent task of raising godly children. That's the balance. And God has given moms specifically, and women in general, the privilege of leading the race of sin, out of sin and into godliness. And in the raising of godly children, it is the godliness, this is very important, beloved, it's the godliness and the virtue of the mom that has the greatest impact on the young life in the next generation. This task is then a woman's appointed role. Now as a footnote, obviously God doesn't want all women to be mothers. Some of them he doesn't even want to be married. And 1 Corinthians 7 makes that very clear. Some have the gift of singleness. 
And that's a marvelous gift and one that benefits the church and the kingdom and people just in a marvelous way. Some he keeps biologically childless for his own purposes. And we don't know what those are, but obviously for his own glory and to give opportunity to do some kinds of things. But as a general rule, just like marriage is generally for most people, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 7, motherhood is generally in the situation, and whether that's through biological motherhood or foster adoption, the opportunity to fulfill those commands becomes very important. She makes a positive contribution to the godliness of the next generation. And she can, by being a mother who raises godly children, bring a generation to the Lord. So what Paul's saying by the Holy Spirit is that a woman must accept her God-given primary role. These are the things that he says are most important. And it's not all the other things that tend to demand your time. But to raise godly children, and she loses the stigma, if look at it, she and they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. If she's godly, in other words, she can raise godly children. And it's just so awful that we're living in a time where women not only don't want to use their lives to raise godly generation, they want to be able to murder that generation anytime they want to. Of course, that's just risen right to the forefront in the last week, hasn't it? And it's just been so horrifying to me when I, when I remember Jesus' words that said Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And then I hear the rhetoric from many of our leaders that demand the right to murder our children as some kind of fundamental right of people. Just shows you how far away from raise another godly generation and move us away from the curse we've become. Just so sad and tragic, and it's so disastrous uh, even that some women want to be identified as men, as if we don't have enough biological men fulfilling the curse already. We have to add a few on to that. When instead they have this unique privilege of raising godly generation of children on whom they can pour their affection that no father can replace. And we'll look at this more in our study, but Paul says to Timothy, look, we're led by men in the worship of the church. They pray, they preach, they teach, they give leadership to the church. But the perfect balance of that is the influence of godly women that raise the godly generation to come. And the only way that's going to happen is as if they, as we look closely at verse 15, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. They have to be the kind of woman described in verses 9 and 10, but they are women whose hearts are marked by godly fear. They're marked by self-control, strong in the faith. They believe God. They're strong in love towards God. Pure and holy, manifest self-control, lovers of husbands, lovers of children, lovers of the home, and they teach the children under their care to be that way too. See, that's how that works. And that's an amazing job for those who will do it, raising a godly generation. And there isn't one that's higher. I would propose that to you. There's not one that's more important than that. And the one God picked is the one that's qualified to do it. And who's going to do it if the Christian wife doesn't? And so she's a keeper of the domain of her home, a worker at home. Titus says she's a lover of children. She's a lover of husbands. She willingly submits. She sets as her task. Timothy says, reversing the curse one child at a time that the word of God may not be dishonored. As we said, so those people watching won't conclude that we don't think the Bible is really all that important when we just disregard what it says. We don't want the Word of God reduced in its importance in the eyes of those watching or in the eyes of our children because we don't do what it says. Now, there are ways to display your love for your children that eclipses 
all other ways. There's a way to move out of the stigma of the fall, and that is to lead your children to Jesus. Obviously, that is your primary job, the most important thing that you can do. And I believe that's on the heart of every godly mom and every godly grandmother and mother-in-law and foster mom and nanny and Sunday school teacher uh, that names Christ. I was brought to faith by a godly VBS teacher who was also a school teacher who gave up part of her summer to teach kids. Imagine that. And so these are, these are very important positions that you're in. They make a huge impact on the future generation. You know, as, as I was told you as I was reading in Ephesians to figure out what I was supposed to do as a dad, fathers love your children so they're not angry with you and bring them up to know the Lord. You can love your children in a way that you think is right. You can make sure they have everything they need, every possible imaginable thing. And you can think that that's love. You can make sure that they know how to play sports and they get to be on a travel team and they do all the kind of stuff that they can do. And they can grow up and be angry with you. You know why? Because you didn't tell them the most important things. And you didn't give your life for them and show them Jesus through your life. And they'll exchange that, what you thought was love, for a godless future. There's things that you have to do and you have to model. And moms, it's the same way for you. But the most important thing you have to do is bring your little one to know Christ so they can have that Holy Spirit restrainer who can begin to do that work in their life. Can't do, but that they need to have happen. And so we're going to go over what you need to teach them. And this, I taught, I've taught this numerous times. Every time I teach it, I get requests for people, uh, from people to give them this outline. So I will give this to you. It's also on the back of your bulletin. You can fill it in. What do I need to tell them? If they're going to continue in faith and hope and, and holiness with self-control, what do, what do I need to make sure they know? How do I go about that? How do I, how do I get them to the point where they will receive Christ as their Savior and the Holy Spirit can take over where I leave off? Because we said, you know, the curse gets in the way and the temptations of the culture. And so um, what sort of sequential steps of information do I give them? You can find this on the back of your bulletin. Number one, teach them about God's holiness. Teach them about God's holiness. God is a holy God. He can't look upon iniquity, and he should be feared. God is without sin. He's without error. God never does anything wrong. He never says anything wrong. He doesn't think anything wrong. God is perfectly holy. Start with that. Do not start with, God loves you and wants to be your friend. Do not start with that. Start with God's holy standard. Leviticus 11.44, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I'm holy. For I am the Lord your God, thus you shall be holy, for I'm holy. Start with Joshua 24.19 and explain it to him. You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God, and he's a jealous God, and he'll not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Or 1 Samuel 6.20, who is able to stand before this Lord, this holy God, or 1 Peter 1.16, or, or you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or Hebrews 12.14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Matthew 5.48, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Start with the holiness of God. Show them that God is absolutely holy, and he set an absolutely holy standard. And then ask them if they're perfect like God, and they'll know they're not. Number two, teach them that God hates sin and is angry with sinners all the time and sinners can't come into his presence. 
Explain Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. There'll be repercussions on down the line, beloved. If you're not faithful to bring your kids to know Christ, on down, generations afterwards, difficulty, hardship, and the most terrifying part, unredeemed. It doesn't take long. Psalm 1.5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In other words, before the Lord, you won't get to plead your case. Everybody thinks, oh, well, I'll just tell him what I think about him. I don't believe in him. Really? The Bible says you won't get to stand in his presence and, and state your case as a wicked person. Number three, show them their sin. They need to understand that they've fallen short of that divine standard. Explain to them James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. In other words, you might be good enough to keep every part of God's law except for one, and when you break that one, you're guilty of all of them. And as a footnote, of course, if you're home, you can model that as you deal with life in the home by setting standards and holding them to those standards and giving them a spanking when they disobey and when they show you attitude, but when they demonstrate sorrow and repentant attitude, you can grant forgiveness, and they learn what that looks like. So you can point out the things that violate God's commands in their life, bad attitudes, words, lies, disobedience to your rules for them, disrespect, dishonoring their parents. Remember, as we looked at Ephesians, you have to teach your, your parents to respect and obey. You have to teach your children to respect and obey. Those are two different things. Both re, will receive corporal punishment for not doing it. The respect part, that's the attitude you get when you tell them to do something, and they roll their eyes, or they slam the door, they do something that and then the and then the obey part is when they actually don't do the thing you told them to do and if you deal with the attitude first you probably won't have to deal with the disobey part this is all part of that see you point that out there are things that they, you put rules in place for them and if they disrespect you they dishonor you you point out how that's a sin see they need to understand no matter how good they are it's not good enough for god's standard number four tell them that they're not alone in their sin everybody is in the same situation. You don't want them to come away thinking they're set apart by themselves in a world full of nice people. Everybody's in the same situation, including you. Make sure they know that. Explain to them Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 8 through 18. And it's not all up there. It's just kind of a snapshot. There are none righteous, not even one. There's none that understands. None seeks after God. Everybody is at the same starting point. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Everybody comes to the same line. Everybody sinned. Sin runs clear through all of the human race. And the whole human race is in danger of hell. Explain Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin. That's what you get as a result of all the sinfulness in your life. That's death. This is where you start, beloved. And you know, if you have, if you have uh, rebellious children who now are grown up and they, they've They've determined that they're not going to follow what you say. No, there's no knife that can stab in your heart that's worse than that. But can I tell you the same thing that I told first service? This is the same gospel you still need to give them. You know, when I post stuff on social media, I attract scorn and scoffing like, you know, uh, flies come to sweet things at a picnic. And I had one this week. It's still the same message. You still are going to have to deal with the holiness of God, whether you like it or not. You don't get to escape that. God makes the rules. 
He's the one that established what it means, what it looks like to be saved. You're going to answer to him. Every knee's going to bow. Every tongue's going to confess. Whether you believe that, whether you think that, whether you like that, it makes no difference. And I don't say it sarcastically. I'm just like, you don't get to escape this just because you say this. Still the same for you. So if you've got children that are walking in disobedience and rebellion, you know, for one reason or another, still give them the gospel in exactly the same order. Start with the holiness of God. Are you holy like God? Because you're held to that standard. Figure out what you're going to do. Hebrews chapter 9, 27, explain that to him. Inasmuch as it's appointed for men to die once, after this comes the judgment. That's everybody. That's everybody. Hebrews 10, 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, when you go through church and you don't come to faith and you live your life like you want, and you just kind of, all that attraction of repentance stuff has lost its appeal to you, and you're just kind of doing the orbital thing around church. Listen, all your expectation now is just punishment. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Uh, Luke 12, 5, I will warn you whom to fear. Make sure your kids understand this. Fear the one after he's killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. They're in danger of hell. And you know what? That's terrifying for a child. It should be terrifying for every adult, except they have accumulated baggage of worldliness and, and self, selfishness and self-centeredness, and then it insulates us in some ways from that terrifying reality. But it's still a terrifying reality, and children will understand that. Once you've shown them God's holy, and once you've shown them their sin, and that God hates sin, and that everyone is a sinner, and all in the same situation, tell them there's nothing they can do to earn their salvation. Nothing. That's number five. Help them understand that they're in a serious situation of which they have no ability to remove themselves. Our sins have offended God. We can't forgive ourselves. It's not possible to make that right by ourselves because they're going to say, I'll do better, Mommy. I'll be better. I'll be a better person, see? And, and you want to affirm that, of course. You, you want them to obey you because when they learn to submit to you and to come up under your authority, then it's easier for them to submit to the Lord because that's a model in some respects of what that relationship to the Lord is going to look like. But they need to know that they've offended a holy God and, and he'll be the one who can forgive sins. We can't forgive sins. He's the only one who can. Explain Isaiah 64, 6 to them. For all of us has become as one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You can go to the, you can go to the, the hamper and pull out some clothing they wore in their most dirty play and just say, every good thing that you do, this is what this looks like to the Lord. It's like this. The best of all we can do is like dirty clothing. Or Psalm 49, 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give God a ransom for his soul. It's costly, the scripture says, and no one can afford it. And then number six, tell them that forgiveness is what God wants to do. Forgiveness is what God wants to do. Explain what Jesus said in Mark 2, 17. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for that very reason, see. They have to know they're sinners. You've got to start with that. They have to know God's holy, and they don't reach that standard. If you don't start there, then there's no reason and no, uh, no motivation for them to seek salvation because they think they can be good enough, see? If you make salvation look like this comfortable jacket you're going to put on, and, and people are going to wear it, and you, they put it on, they realize it's not that comfortable. Why am I wearing this? They understand that the temperature's going to drop to several, degree, several degrees below zero. They'll be glad for the jacket, Right? 
You've got to make sure they have the need first. Don't say God loves you and wants to be your friend. Don't start there. They have to know that Jesus came to call them. He came to call sinners. So give them the good news. So tell them the story of Jesus. See, Not just the little stories, not just the parables, not just Zacchaeus and all that. You know, it's time with men. Tell them the main story, the main thing. That God is so loving, He sent His Son to live as a human and do it without sin so He could save disobedient sinners like you and me. Say that to your children. He is so loving, He sent Jesus to do this. Explain Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He's been tempted in all ways, just as we are, yet without sin. Everything we're tempted to do and we do wrong, He was tempted to do and did right. How about 2 Corinthians 5, 21? One of my favorite passages in all the Bible. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Make sure they understand that. What a, what a wonderful thing to think about. That Jesus exchanged His own righteousness and took on our sinfulness so we could have His righteousness. He became a sacrifice for us and He took God's wrath and He shed His blood and He died as a payment for our sin because the wages of sin is death. So by his death on the cross, the way of forgiveness for sinners is provided. See, And they'll understand that. He died bearing our sin. And then explain the resurrection and why that's important. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our transgressions. He went to the cross because of us. And he was raised for our justification. He was raised, he proved the price was sufficient, and we got the credit. satisfied God's requirements for our sin, which was death. Explain 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the satisfaction for our sin. Jesus paid our debt. He paid our bill, the one we were supposed to pay, and the guilt that we had on us. He took on Him, and He took it all away. Explain Philippians 2.9. God has highly exalted Jesus and given Him a name that is above every name, the name Lord And at that name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And beloved, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But you want to do it now. You don't want to wait until future judgment. And then lastly, number seven, tell them what they have to do in response. You don't want to leave this part out. And they'll be ready to hear it. What do I have to do to repent and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior? Explain those passages, Acts 17, 30. God is now declaring that all men everywhere should repent. All men everywhere. He's still declaring it. All men everywhere should repent. Acts 26, 20. Repent and turn to God. Teach them to do the same thing that you had to do. Turn from your sin and ask God to forgive you through Jesus Christ. That's what you had to do. Show them what that looks like. Show them what repentance means. It's a turning away from those things. A desire not to do them anymore. And realizing that you can't do this on your own. So you had to take Jesus' payment for you. Because you still owed that debt. And he took it. And now you don't want to be that way anymore. And you want Jesus to lead you. And he gives you his Holy Spirit. And he'll do just that. See, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. It's very simple, isn't it? Teach them to trust Jesus. To believe that he died for them. That he will save them. Urge them not to wait. 
to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Where all their feelings, every place where they understand life and how it goes, with the heart a person believes. And you get Jesus' righteousness when you believe on him. And with the mouth, you say the things that are true about salvation and what Jesus did. And that results in your salvation. Tell them to speak these words now. Do this. Seek the Lord while he can be found. Plead with him to be reconciled to God in that way. And do as, as early as they can understand it. See, they, they can understand it if you can explain it carefully. And if you're modeling that in your life and your life is you're walking with the Lord and, you, and, and as they understand the Scriptures, you're doing those things. See, you, kids can sniff out a phony pretty early. But if, if your life is, if the fabric of your life, dad, mom, is, is Jesus, it's not just going to church, that's when you act like Jesus and then on the way home it's a huge argument and it's a big blow up when you get stay home and then they're watching you curse and do the things that the world does and they watch your mom not walk with the Lord and not read the Bible. Listen, don't think you're going to change anything when you're like that, Okay? You only get to change this generation if you continue in faith and holiness and self-control, see? And that happens as a result of you taking in the Word of God. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And then doing it. Do it as early as you can. And beloved, they'll respond positively if it's done in a loving environment. Just keep doing it very thoroughly. Don't waste any time. I tell dads all the time, listen, with my boys, one of the most precious times I can remember all the way up till they're 9 or 10 years old, is every single night, we had four, every single night, I laid down with each one of those guys, and we read the Bible, and we prayed, and we talked about Jesus, and we talked about what that looks like to live that way. Every single night. Listen, that's a lot of time that you think you need to use for something else. Is there a more important thing for you to do? Moms, is there a more important thing for you to do than to raise a godly generation? What's the other end of that? You don't take the time, your kids end up rejecting Christ, and they end up in hell. That's the most horrible thing I could possibly think about as a parent for our, our students to reject what we hold most dear. And of course, they're independent and they're going to do what they're going to do, but your job is to, to do these things, see. Be found faithful in these things. And they'll respond. Just keep doing it. And if you said, you know, God knows, listen, God knows when it becomes faith acceptable to Him and not just your faith acceptable to them. You get that? You know, if you're modeling that, they're going to accept, yeah, I, I want to follow Jesus too, because you are, you know, and, and young children tend to want to do what their parents are going to do. But you want to keep bringing them along and affirming that, and at some point, that faith will be acceptable to God. They understand that they're free moral agent, that they're, that they're uh, wicked and before Him, dead in their sin, and they have to seek Him for salvation. And that's going to be that transition. You're not going to know really where that occurs. And then all, all of a sudden, it's like, you know, you, you tell them and you tell them and tell them and they're older. They said, yeah, I know you told me that, but one time I was at, I was at home in my bed and I, I, I understood this and I just prayed. That's, what, that's where you want to get, see. The faith that's, your faith acceptable to them becomes a faith acceptable to God, their faith. And leading children to salvation is no different than leading adults. It's no different. I gave you the gospel that would save you, see. And you got to start, God hates sin all day long. And he's holy, and you're never going to be there. So you're going to have to deal with that in your life, okay? You're going to get to a point in your life where you'll stand before a holy God, and if you haven't received Christ as your Savior, you're going to be cast into hell because you're going to be judged for all of your sin. And he's going to open all the books, so don't think you're going to be okay and you've done enough good things. All the books will be open, and it's all been recorded, and it's all going to be read to you, and then you'll be cast into the lake of fire. This is very clear teaching in Scripture. It's not, Jesus said more about 
this and just about any other thing. Okay, that's very, very clear teaching. So it, it's imperative as parents we bring this to our kids. It's, a, it's same, same gospel for adults, but the hearts of kids are tender and they're eager and they're responsive and they're not hardened by many years of selfishness and self-centeredness and worldliness and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, which dominates most adults. And they don't want to exchange their life for the one Jesus offers because they think this one's pretty good. See, But you know, hell is terrifying to a kid, and it should be terrifying. And heaven, too, is marvelous to a kid. And it should be marvelous to an adult. And, and we've had many conversations in our home about how marvelous heaven will be and what God has designed for those who love him. And as we look at this world, even in its cursed state, and the enjoyment we can get from it. And we've spent lots of time as a family out camping and on the beach and all kinds of things which we really enjoy. We realize a cursed world, even a cursed world, is lovely that we can enjoy this, that God's given us richly all these things to enjoy. So how much more in an uncursed state, a remade world, and a heaven God's created for those who are His? You know? And so those things are enjoyable too to think about. And, and children are very swayed by those things. And they're realities that we need to tell them about. We don't leave that out. But here's what I would say. You know who's going to get the opportunity to do this most often? Godly women. They're going to get to do it most often. Godly mothers, godly grandmothers, Sunday school teachers, VBS workers. Titus says she's a lover of children and a lover of husbands, and she willingly submits to those tasks that the Word of God might not be dishonored, and she sets as her task, Timothy says, reversing the curse one child at a time. She's more concerned about those things than anything else. Everything's about that. It's about the home, isn't it? Because she's a keeper of it. And so she's there, and the husband, and the children, and the needy. Love, those are just some of God's instructions for those who call on his name. His word might not be dishonored. And we reverse the curse one child at a time. And it's not an indictment on anyone. I'm not teaching to anyone except myself. And a reminder of what the Word of God says. I didn't write it. It was written, given to Timothy, given to Titus to teach to the church. It's still just as valuable now as it was then. It helps us reset our thoughts, help us understand where we need to put priority, that the Word might not be dishonored. Reversing the curse one child at a time. Moms, ladies, you're the one God picked to do these tasks. And may we take them and do them, that you ladies will be the mothers and wives and grandmothers and mother-in-laws God wants you to be. This battle will be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Lord, we thank you today for that wonderful time together. We thank you for uh, all these ladies who love you, who desire to serve you, who've led uh, many children to faith, or their own particularly, and others. Thank you for the investment that they've made and the hardship they've endured and the things that they have sacrificed to make this happen. We're very grateful. We have so many godly moms and grandmas and, and uh, Sunday school teachers here, Father, foster moms. You're so good to give us godly men, godly women that model these things, godly older women who teach our younger women to do these things. We're very, very grateful for that. Continue to do that, Father. It's very simple what's supposed to be going on in the church. It's not complex as we've made it in our culture. And we're not overly concerned about the, the way our culture is going or the way that our, our world is at this time, our economy, because we're, we're not at home here. We were always passing through. 
we know that you'll never leave us or forsake us and provide all the needs that we have according to your riches and glory. So if that's the case, Father, you can provide us with a lot of contentment and peace and quietness of spirit to focus on the things that really matter, producing another generation of God, godly men and women who can impact our culture and be salt and light until your son returns. That's our prayer, and we thank you for that. We thank you for our moms. Pray that you'll bless them today. Help them to feel encouraged and, and valued. We love them. Pray thus all in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we long to see. All God's people said, amen.